Well, today you should have a handout, so raise your hand if you do not have a handout. <clears throat> Last week there, uh, there was no handout. I like to mix it up, that way uh, you're on your toes. <laughs> today, uh, <clears throat> the reason for the handout is uh, primarily due to the fact that there is a lot of material and uh, I think it would be very hard for you to uh, to take notes on all of it, and it is something that I want to make sure that you get in its entirety. This is a subject that we've uh, we've talked about in the past, but I do not believe I've ever taken the time uh, to do what uh, we're going to attempt to do here this morning, and uh, that is to discuss what I believe are the uh, the main tenets of evangelical belief as a means to equipping you then to have conversations with the evangelicals uh, that you know. And to do that, as we're going to see, uh, requires that you understand where they're coming, where they're coming from. So the title for this morning's sermon, Understanding What Evangelicals Believe About Salvation, that will be the, uh, the main focus of our study then, and with that in mind, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time, shall we? Father, thank you that we have time like this to, again, go to your word and to discern what is the correct way to follow you. Lord, your scripture is clear. There's even a doctrine that the church has held to for a very long time called the perspicuity of Scripture, or the clarity of Scripture, which uh, supports uh, this very thing, that your word is clear, and especially uh, when it comes uh, to salvation or the gospel, and yet so many people today, so many who claim your name in this country, uh, hold to uh, something that uh, is very false, even though your word is clear, what they hold to is very false. And Father, I pray that through our time in your word, uh, you would make that not only clear to us that what they believe is false, uh, but that you would equip us to be able to address uh, these uh, false beliefs and uh, to your glory even lead some of these people uh, to a true and saving relationship with Christ. Make it so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you'll direct your eyes to the top of the, uh, the handout there, this is a quote coming from uh, the great Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield. He says this, and I quote, the chief dangers to Christianity do not come from anti-Christian systems. Nobody fears that Christianity will be swallowed up by Mohammedism, or Buddhism. It is corrupt forms of Christianity itself which menace the life of Christianity. Why make much of minor points of difference between those who serve the one Christ? Because a pure gospel is worth preserving. And it is not only worth preserving, but it is logically the only saving gospel. With that in mind then, Here's the introduction to our study. What most evangelicals believe about 
the historical facts of the gospel, and by the historical facts I'm referring to Christ's death and resurrection, what they believe about that and its significance to justification is correct. And I've given you some verses in relation to that because these are the verses that oftentimes evangelicals will turn to to discuss the gospel or what they believe about the gospel or even what the scripture identifies as the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 4 uh, are dealing with the gospel as it relates to the historical facts, Christ's death and resurrection, whereas Romans 4.25 deals with uh, the significance of Jesus' resurrection as it relates to justification. However, according to Scripture, there is more to the gospel than just assent to the historical facts. Paul makes this clear by his use of that term gospel in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. You know the text where Jesus, or excuse me, Paul says, If anyone comes preaching a gospel different than the one that you heard, let him be accursed. And uh, what that whole letter is devoted to is not uh, something different as it relates to the historical facts, Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, but the theological import of how a person gets saved or what that looks like. It is here that the evangelical severely digresses from the path of Scripture. It is here that we find not minor, but major points of different, difference with what the Bible teaches. So much so that what many evangelicals ultimately believe about the gospel or salvation renders them a sect or cult within Christianity or another religion entirely. Who then are the evangelicals? Well, according to George Marsden, the popular American historian, he says this, an evangelical is anyone who likes Billy Graham and has a general disregard for the institutional church. And that's what you find within evangelicalism is a lot of those who claim to be evangelicals and Christians don't like the church, don't trust the church. Many of them are not even associated with a visible church. The majority of those claiming to be Christian in America today, in America today, that's who the evangelicals are. Per a 2017 survey, upwards of 50 to 80 million Americans identify as evangelical Christians. As such, they represent the largest Christian group in America, 24% of the professing Christian population, more than even Roman Catholics. In America. To be American then, to many people, is to be an evangelical. What others, including evangelical scholars, have said about evangelicalism that shows concern is shared even by those in their own camp. Mark Knoll, a, another very popular name within evangelical circles, he's a historian, or primarily functions in that capacity. In his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, he says this, and I quote, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. D.G. Hart, another uh, Christian church historian, in his book, Deconstructing Evangelicalism, says this, scholars have questioned whether evangelicalism has any substance beyond vague and warm affirmations about a personal relationship with Jesus. The goal of evangelicalism is to find a lowest common denominator faith or form of Christianity. 
Evangelicalism has emerged as the single most powerful explanatory device to account for the distinctive features of American society and identity. Everyone from American, everything rather, from American bigotry to the American Revolution can be attributed to the stupidity of evangelical Protestantism. A faith once dismissed as backward or rural has become one of the most important. Its strength lies precisely in its appeal to individual choice rather than patterns of ascription or inheritance which characterizes traditional religions. Unlike older forms of Christianity which finds its identity in the church, evangelicalism locates the primary mechanism of religious identity in the sovereign individual. Through the popularity of evangelical celebrities and parachurch organizations, evangelicalism forfeited the authority the church possesses, end quote. Michael Sayward in his book Evangelicals on the Move says this, and I quote, this is the disturbing legacy of evangelicalism. A generation brought up on guitars, choruses, and home group discussions, educated not to use words with precision because the image is dominant, not the word. Equipped not to handle doctrine, but rather to share a generation suspicious of definition and labels, uneasy at and sometimes incapable of being asked to wrestle with sustained didactic exposition of theology. I don't like that. Excellent when it comes to providing religious music, drama, and art. Not so good when asked to preach and teach the Orthodox Christian faith. Harold Bloom, an American historian had this to say, religion in the United States is something subtly other than Christianity, though to say that we are a post-Christian country is misleading. The better term is post-Protestant, which suggests that Americans live with such a persuasive redefinition of Christianity that they refuse to admit that they have revised the traditional religion into a faith that better fits our national temperament, aspirations, and anxieties. It's called evangelicalism. And again, this is coming from in large part, uh, evangelicals are saying this about their religion. The final, Ian Murray, has this to say, and I quote, wrong belief is as dangerous as unbelief. Wrong belief is as dangerous as unbelief. The decay of true Christianity in the West is not the result of sociological or secular pressures. It is the result of the presence of falsehood within evangelicalism where there should be truth. So even evangelicals or their scholars see a problem. See a problem. Uh, and yet, this is the most popular form of Christianity in the United States today. Which means that we as biblical Christians, true Christians, need to understand who or what it is that we're dealing with if we have any hope of reaching such people for Christ. If we're going to reach them, we need to understand what they believe about salvation that makes their gospel false. Uh, as uh, the early church father Cyprian said, if we, know, uh, if we know what made us fall, we can heal our wounds. We need to know uh, where they're coming from. And I believe that there are, are five main beliefs or tenets uh, to the evangelical uh, belief system, and, and, and uh, you should be able to see as we move through them how they are connected uh, together. And again, this is where they're coming from, which means 
uh, when they say things or even as they hear what you say, uh, this is the framework that they're putting it into. And you need to understand that because otherwise what happens is having conversations with such people is just, uh, it's like playing volleyball. Uh, you, they, 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 they volley their, uh, the serve over the net and, and uh, you're just volleying it back and they, they're, they're, they're not at all concerned with uh, receiving what it is that you're saying but in, instead just, again, returning that, that volley. And so it's just shots fired over each other's bows with nobody actually listening to what's going on or understanding where the other person is coming from. And so if we're to be effective with these people, and this is really what I believe that Paul's getting at in Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, when he says, let your reasonableness be evident to all. If we're really going to be reasonable with them, if, if there's any hope of them understanding, then we need to understand what they assume to be true and how it is that they're interpreting the data that we're giving to them. And that most especially as it relates to this first point, salvation is works-based. This is how they view what the Bible teaches in order to get to heaven. Now, uh, most evangelicals are not theologically trained, and so they're not aware of this. If you say salvation, you believe salvation is works-based, they'll say, no, we don't, that's what the Roman Catholics believe. But they do believe that. Their scholars, R.C. Sprawl, for example, an evangelical scholar, uh, considered in uh, modern times in our day uh, to be one of the greatest, the late R.C. Sprawl, one of my former uh, professors at Reformed Theological Seminary, uh, uh, made it very clear in his book, Getting the Gospel Right, uh, that uh, the gospel that evangelicals believes is, like the Roman Catholics, works-based. And we'll see that quote here in just a little bit. But understand, uh, that is true. What they believe is a, that, that salvation is attained through works. You earn, in other words, uh, your way uh, to heaven. Now, the first two arguments that I'm going to give to you, uh, and, and what I'm attempting to do through the arguments here, you'll see that the, the, the pattern through each of these is there's an argument and then a rebuttal. Uh, the first two as it relates uh, to this first point uh, are things that uh, nine times out of ten aren't going to come up. Uh, but this, this is for you, obviously, you'll take these notes home, uh, so that you know where this is coming from ultimately. And, and it's coming from uh, essentially two sources. The first is this, uh, what's known as covenant theology, uh, covenant theology's covenant of works. Okay, so this is a, is a belief, a doctrine, uh, within what's known as covenant theology, and anyone who would consider themselves to be reformed, or the term uh, that is used as uh, Calvinistic, uh, would fall under most likely, most of them at least if they're consistent historically, uh, then what they hold to as their biblical theology is known as covenant theology. There's essentially two that are uh, the most predominant in America, dispensationalism and covenant theology. Well, within covenant theology, you have what's known as the covenant of works. And here's what that covenant teaches. In the garden, God made a covenant with Adam and Eve that promised them immortality if they did not sin for a certain probationary period of time. This same covenant is reinstated every time the law is preached and represents the original way a person could attain to eternal life. Now, that second sentence is really more important than the first. Uh, this same covenant or how this covenant works according to works, you earn your way to heaven, uh, is believed to be reinstated, meaning in the, uh, the, the, the covenants or the salvific covenants that follow. So you, you start with what we call the Adamic covenant, 
which as we're going to see has support in scripture. That's the first salvific covenant that God makes with, uh, with man. And then you have the Noahic and then the Abrahamic. And then after the Abrahamic, you have the Mosaic and then finally the, the new covenant. But they say every covenant after that, every covenant after that, uh, uh, and every time the law is preached, uh, it reinstates this particular uh, uh, mechanic or, 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 or paradigm for how the covenant operates unto salvation. And that is, again, according to uh, works. And you'll see support for that. Uh, there I've given you two footnotes. The first is coming from uh, uh, the Westminster Confession as it relates to uh, the covenant of uh, works. Uh, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works where life was promised to Adam and in, him, and in him to his posterity, meaning everyone that came from him, us, upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. So that's coming straight from the Westminster Confession, which uh, every historically reformed uh, denomination, Presbyterian most specifically, uh, would follow. So you go to a Presbyterian church and you say, uh, what is your doctrinal statement? They're going to give you the Westminster Confession. Okay, And so you'll see there that they, they hold to this, this thing called the covenant of works. Uh, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works. Uh, as it relates to uh, this being reinstated, notice when the law is preached, this is coming from uh, our buddy, R. Scott Clark, not really our buddy, that's sarcastic, but uh, R. Scott Clark, when the law is preached, the covenant of works is reinstated. It says, do this and live. Do this and live. So um, what I've told you is according to what they believe. That's what I'm that's the reason I've given to you the footnotes there, so you see I'm not just making this up, okay? So this is, the, this is where this idea that salvation is workspace is coming from. It first comes from this idea that there was a covenant of works that God made originally with man in the Garden of Eden, and that that covenant has been reinstated, or the, how that covenant functions, which again is according to works, you earn your way to heaven, is reinstated through every following covenant, okay? So rebuttal. In relation to that, here's our response. Though God did make a covenant with Adam, Hosea verse, uh, verse 7 of chapter 6, Hosea 6 verse 7 uh, makes that clear. We've talked about this before. There's certain verses we're going to turn to here today. There's others we will not. Uh, we've talked about this before. You can look it up. But it's clear there that God did make a covenant with Adam in the garden. Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 I think also makes that clear. Uh, we talked about this I think under the image bearer sermon that uh, it's translated in the ESV Lord God. And the capital L-O-R-D uh, is referring to God's covenant name that's picked up there. And I've given to you the, the Hebrew there Yahweh Elohim. Uh, Yahweh is that covenant name or Yehovah, uh, the covenant name of God. Uh, makes it clear that something's changed because you don't see that prior to it. It's just Elohim, Elohim, Elohim. And then in chapter 2, after the creation of the, uh, the man and the woman, you have uh, God's covenant name uh, now, being, uh, now being used, which, uh, which in indicates that there's a covenant that's now in place. Uh, though that is true, though God does make covenant with Adam in the garden, never is there mention of a probationary period of works or obedience whereby Adam and Eve would earn their immortality. When I was in seminary and my professor taught this, I, I, I questioned this, or I asked the question. And uh, it just about got me thrown out of seminary. I was actually threatened that if I didn't stop, I would be thrown out. 
And all I wanted was the scriptural support for this particular position. Because it's not found in scripture. There is a covenant, but to say that that covenant was uh, according to works, and that there was some probationary period of time that Adam and Eve needed to be good little boys and girls, and that eventually God would uh, secure them in their immortality, uh, nowhere to uh, be found. Argument number two, that again, this is the arguments that are used, and this would be by those who are, 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 are theologically trained, and again, that's probably not going to be nine out of the ten people that you meet, ten out of the ten people that you meet who are evangelical, they're not going to understand this, but if you were to go out to the web and you were to look these things up, uh, this is the kind of support you would find. The Lutheran Reform view of the Mosaic Covenant. The Lutheran or Reform view of the Mosaic Covenant Uh, which understands uh, the Mosaic Covenant this way. The generation under and after Moses until Christ were saved through their adherence to the law. This covenant was, and here again, the idea of reinstating it every time after uh, Adam uh, comes up as republication. This covenant was a republication of the prior covenants, most especially the covenant with Adam, the covenant of works. And uh, a great, uh, I think a a great piece on this uh, has been done by uh, a man by the name of Zachary Garris was the Mosaic Covenant, a republication of the covenant of works. It's worth your time if you have interest in this. He does a good job. He's, he's uh, completely wrong, uh, but it's a good paper nonetheless, uh, to, to attempt to support this idea that you have there uh, in the Mosaic Covenant, again, uh, the covenant uh, of works. And here now I give to you uh, R.C. Sprawl's uh, comment as it relates to even the New Covenant or any salvific covenant that God established with man. Sorry, his name is not mentioned there. I notice uh, there I have the the place where you can find it, his book, Getting the Gospel Right, but this is coming from R.C. Footnote number five, ultimately the only one one can be justified is by works. We indeed are justified by works, but the works that justify us are the works of Christ. And this is the piece that is missing in nine out of every ten evangelical, so to speak. Uh, They're not theologically trained, and so the moment you say salvation is by works, you believe in works-based salvation, they say, no, that's what the Roman Catholics believe, not realizing that they believe it too. The difference that was made by Luther as it related to these two categories, and why I call it Roman Catholicism 2.0, that's all evangelicalism is, is that Luther just said, it's still works-based, so he, he assumed what was false coming out of the Roman Catholic Church, rather than going all the way back to the start and saying everything, or at least we need to look at the foundation itself, uh, he assumed that part to be true, and all he did was modify the end. Yes, it's works-based, but now Jesus does the works for us. See, that's the difference. And again, for most evangelicals, they don't know that piece, so they're going to say, no, you're Roman Catholics if you believe in a works-based salvation, or you're Roman Catholic. We don't believe in that. We believe in, in, in faith in Christ is the way to be saved. Yes, but, but, it's, but, but your faith in Christ is a faith uh, in what you believe he's done as it relates to this works-based salvation. We're going to get to that here in a second. It'll flesh itself out as something they also believe, and if they just put the two together, uh, they, they would see this. But nonetheless, here coming again from R.C. Sprawl, and uh, with those who, who really think they're smart, that's worth quoting uh, to them. What it is that R.C. had uh, to say about uh, this being uh, works base. So again, uh, this is what they believe, uh, and it comes from not only uh, the covenant of works, but also uh, the Lutheran or reform view of the Mosaic Covenant as a republication uh, of that. 
So the rebuttal to that, our response, or the Bible's response to that, there exists no legitimate support for viewing the salvific covenants of Scripture, including those of the Old Testament, the Adamic, the Noahic, the Abrahamic, and the Mosaic, as works-based. No evidence. Like the covenant of works itself. Uh, Where's the evidence of this probationary period or that God was requiring them to earn their way to immortality? Where is that? It, it, it's, uh, it sounds maybe smart or intelligent, but where's the support, right? Well, again, uh, that's the question that needs to be asked. Where is uh, the support that that's indeed how these covenants function? Uh, which means going back to really the initial question, what kind of covenants are we dealing with? Nobody questions the fact that covenants uh, are established in the Bible. The, pri- the, the predominant reason that covenants are established, not all covenants, but those covenants that God establishes with man for the purpose of salvation are salvific. That's how God saves people. He saves people by way of covenant. And what is a covenant? Well, in modern terms, it's a contract. And there's certain things that need to be fulfilled for that contract to remain uh, intact or in force. Uh, just like a contract, a business contract, uh, where I say, okay, I'm going to pay you X number of dollars if you do the work, right? They do the work, I pay them the money. God says, uh, here are the promises, uh, here's your obligation, here's what you need to do. According to them, what we need to do is earn our way, unless we uh, believe in Christ, which is supposedly under the new covenant what happened in Jesus. He did the works for us, and we're going to see that here in a second. But again, where's the evidence that that's how these covenants are functioning? Which means, as I was getting to, you go back, and that's the initial question that needs to be asked. What kind of covenants are these? And the very simple, and and I say it's simple because the, the moment you put any kind of time into this, just asking that question, you say, okay, God saves by covenant. Okay, I've got all these covenants. What kind of covenants are there? Well, in ancient times, there was, just like today, there was all kinds of different kinds of covenants. There was what is known as Susan tree covenants, which were covenants made between a king and his vassals or his people. And that's how a lot of these uh, particular scholars will, uh, will identify uh, the covenants in the Bible. They'll say, well, those covenants, the salvific covenants, are Susan tree covenants. The question again is, is identifying that. How do we know that? Where's the evidence? Well, as I said, just even a little bit of time uh, leads you not to the conclusion that it's a king and his vassal, even though there's some support for that, but rather that they are marriage covenants. And uh, in response, whether you want to know this or not, to those who say that they're Susan tree covenants or it's a covenant between a king and his uh, vassals or his people, and uh, they'll even try to take books like Hebrew or excuse me, Deuteronomy or other books and say they're actually laid out like an old Susan tree covenant. Um, the, 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 the problem with that or, or their response or my response to that is, is that even Susan tree covenants were established upon the grounds or the framework of the marital covenant which is the first covenant in Scripture. Go back to Genesis chapter 2, the covenant that God makes with or that is made between the man and the woman. And so so all, as a matter of fact, I I would argue that every single contract or covenant that has ever been made after that finds its framework or its basis in the marital covenant. So it's okay to say that that they have Susan Tree aspects, but ultimately uh, where they, uh, where they, 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 they find their, uh, uh, their, their true identity is in the marital contract or the marital covenant. They are marriage covenants. The Bible begins with a marriage, 
and with a marriage covenant and uh, all of the language from stem to stern, from Genesis to Revelation, we've talked about this before, all of the language is marital in nature. There's a great book by a guy by the name of uh, Ray Ortland Jr. who it's called Whoredom, God's Unfaithful Wife. And uh, he, he, he basically just takes the time of showing how Israel was in a marriage covenant contract with God and they, they were unfaithful to that, uh, to that marriage. But again, you do the study in Scripture yourself by just asking that question, uh, what kind of covenants are there, and you come away with all this marriage language. Ezekiel 16, I found you while you were squirming in your blood, and I raised you, and I, and I, and I came into covenant uh, with you at the time of marriage. I came in. I betrothed you to myself. And this is exactly the same language that, that Paul uses when he, when he speaks of uh, betrothing us or the church uh, as a virgin to Christ. It's the language that Paul uses in Ephesians 5 when he talks about Christ and the church and he talks about it as a marriage and that how our marriages, our human marriages, are to reflect that marriage, Christ and the church. It's the language that Jesus uses many times in the parables, the parable of the virgins, for example. It's the very thing that John himself identifies himself as, as the best man to the bridegroom in John chapter 3, verse 29, when he says, he must increase, but I must decrease, now that the bridegroom is here. And so all over the scriptures, and again, from stem to stern, it begins with the marriage, it ends with the marriage. Revelation 19, what do we have? The marriage supper of the lamb, the bride, who is identified as the church, her dress is identified as her good deeds. Marrying herself to Christ, the betrothal now coming to consummation in the new heavens and the new earth. The whole book is built around uh, the marriage covenant. That's the picture, and so that's our response. These covenants are not covenants of work, but rather covenants that are marital in nature. They are marriage covenants. And there's no evidence whatsoever uh, to them being works-based Uh, covenants, or that one is somehow earning their way to heaven. So support, and the easiest, and I've I've, I've just really, I've had to be selective to put this on uh, the front and back of one sheet of paper, and so I don't have everything here, but uh, Jeremiah chapter, uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, you know the text, but let's look at it again, Jeremiah chapter 31, which is, uh, by the way, is quoted in Hebrews 8 and in Hebrews 10, New Testament, the writer makes it clear that this is what is being fulfilled, what we see being prophesied uh, through the mouth of Jeremiah, uh, through the mouth of Jeremiah, almost, uh, uh, by the way, almost a thousand years prior, Jeremiah 31. Sorry, not almost. Not, not, um, 500, almost 600 years prior. Uh, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 32. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. As I've said before, Old Testament, the word testament just means covenant. So uh, we, we separate our Bibles into two halves, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the New Testament. I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Notice the words that are used here, telling us what kind of covenants both the old and the new are. Though I was their, notice, husband, declares the Lord. What kind of covenants? They are marriage covenants. By the way, uh, uh, support for this, 
one of the ways to go about it is to say, well, uh, the, the, the biggest names in all of the, in all of the Bible believed uh, that the covenants that God made to save people were, were marriage covenants. So, well, what do you mean the biggest names? Well, how about the biggest prophets? Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Isaiah chapter 50, where is the, where is the certificate, certificate of divorce that I gave to your whoring mother? Clearly, uh, Isaiah saw uh, uh, the, the covenants, the salvific covenants as marital in nature because God's now asking for a divorce. Jeremiah chapter 3, besides what we read here in Jeremiah 31, uh, God again brings that up and says, hey, look, if I go forward with this, with this divorce, which is what Revelation is all about, God finally going through with it, Christ finally going through with it. He says, look, you understand according to my law, which I also submit to, according to Deuteronomy 24, if I do this, in Jeremiah chapter 3, God warns this, if I do this, Christ warns this, if I do this, I can never take you back. So Jeremiah clearly believed that the covenants that God used to save people were marital in nature. And Ezekiel, the text I've already quoted from, Ezekiel 16. So there's your, your big names from the Old Testament. How about the, how about the New Testament? Jesus clearly believed that. We've already seen that. John the Baptist also believed that. We've clearly seen that or have already made mention uh, to that. that that's... I think those are the kinds of people you want to stand with. You say, well, you believe this. Who else believes this? Uh, and I didn't even include Moses. You could start with Moses. You got Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Jesus, and the, uh, John the Baptist. Oh, by the way, and also Paul, right? We've already talked about that. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Ephesians chapter 5. That's good company if you ask me. They're marital in nature. And establishing that means you have to continually go back to that with the evangelical. Because what the evangelical wants to do is say that these covenants are, again, works-based. And you have to keep coming back and saying, no, uh, they're marital in nature, which means now answering maybe even the bigger question, and that is, what makes a marriage different than something that is works-based? Well, as I've said for many years, right, you don't, uh, you're not earning the kisses or the blessings of the marriage through the good things that you do. Those things have already been afforded to you by the very fact that you have, uh, by grace, through faith in one another, at the time that you took those marital vows, uh, you have, through those rites of passage that happened during the time of the marriage, at that time, uh, you, you gained all of those particular blessings. And now it's just a matter of faithfully maintaining the fidelity of that marriage so that those blessings can continue to be afforded to you. Which means though there is obligation to work, though there is obligation to obey, it is not the same as saying that I'm earning something. I already possess it. I am not attempting to, to possess it. I already have gained it. It's just a matter of maintaining it. And that, as you'll see here, as I've put in the notes, which uh, you know. Uh, according to uh, marriage... It is not a workspace, even though there are works that must be done. It instead functions by the principles of gain and maintain. We gain by grace through faith uh, that marital relationship. Now, again, as it relates to spiritual things with Christ, uh, through faith or observance of God's, and I've changed it here, we talk about the clean laws, God's Sabbath rites. And how I'm using that term rights there is this, uh, we use that, uh, in the way that we use that phrase, rights or, or right of passage, 
which refers to something that you do to enter into relationship or covenant with another. That's what a rite of passage is. And I think that that's really the better way to describe uh, these things. And there are two that are predominant in the scripture, circumcision and sacrifice. Just to make it really simple, Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 10, uh, where God comes to Abraham and says, okay, we're going to make this covenant. And I will be God to you, and uh, you will be my people, right? I will be their God, and they shall be my people, what we call the Bundes formal, which is, the, which is, the, what, what, is what is said uh, by God. That's, that's his, uh, his, his vow. That's his promise. I will be your God, which means I'll be your provider, your protector, the one who pardons you of your sins, all the things we see in the Lord's Prayer. God says, I promise to do that. You'll be my people. I'll be your God. I'll do that for you. That's God's vow uh, to us. And you see this picked up in places like Genesis 17. I'll do that, and here is the way that we'll come into that relationship. Here's what you'll do to enter into that relationship as part of your vows. Here's the symbol that you'll take upon your body, circumcision, circumcision. And so uh, Genesis 17, that was the Sabbath rite of passage. Why do I say Sabbath rite? Because uh, this was done, or this was to be done and signified when it was done, the Lord's day. And so Sabbath rites. Uh, Also, sacrifice in Exodus 24 when they go up on Mount Sinai. And uh, again, here now you have that, uh, that generation 400 years later after Abraham. And uh, here we have the establishment of the Mosaic Covenant. And what do they do to make that covenant? Well, they take vows. Everything that the Lord has said, Moses first reads the law to them, which, by the way, is, is, is made synonymous in that passage with the covenant. He reads from the book of the covenant. And what is the covenant? To be in covenant means that you obey the law. And so he, he says all this, and the people say, yes, we will. Just like a marital couple uh, says to each other that they will keep the particular vows as it relates to their marriage. I will do this. And then the other says their vows to the other. And, uh, and they do that. And then there's certain symbols, the rings, right, that they take upon themselves as the ratification of that particular covenant, as the confirmation of faith by grace. They're, they're by grace coming into this relationship with, with each other. And they're by faith holding, uh, believing uh, those things about each other. And the, and, and, the, and the rings are the symbol that this covenant now has been ratified. That they've accepted those things by grace through faith as it relates to each other. And so we see this as it relates to uh, the vows that are made. What happens? Moses then takes the blood which symbolizes their cleansing. God says, okay, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. As part of being your God, I cleanse you of your sins. And so uh, we have there among these circumcised people now sacrifice. By the way, we see the same thing back in Genesis. It's just in Genesis chapter 15. It starts with the sacrifice and ends with circumcision. But both are there. These what we call Sabbath rites. And these things are picked up beautifully or more specifically sacrifice. What happens at uh, Sinai in Exodus 24 is picked up in 1 Peter, 1 Peter, New Testament, verses 1 and 2. You have an allusion, a direct allusion back to Sinai where the people say, We will obey everything that you say, Jesus. Jude chapter 1 verse 5 says it's Jesus that leads them out of Egypt. And so it's Jesus that they're talking to on Mount Sinai. We'll do everything you say, Jesus. And Moses, it says, takes the blood and sprinkles it upon the people. They receive forgiveness because they agree to the terms of the covenant. And in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, it says that we receive the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. Because of what? Our commitment to obey Jesus. A direct allusion back to 
Sinai. And so uh, you have uh, the observance of certain Sabbath rites. And we could go on even further to say, well, what does that look like for us? Uh, what does that look like? How do we put faith in Christ? Well, there is a, there's a particular sacrament or symbol that goes along with that. What is it called? Baptism. And so these are the means by which we come into covenant relationship, we gain that marital relationship with Christ, and then we maintain it through faithful obedience to the rest of God's commands, His moral commands. And when you look at Deuteronomy 28, 1 and 2, what does it say? God says, if you faithfully obey me, obey my moral commands. And so again, what are we talking about here? Well, is it workspace? No, it's a marriage. And last time I checked, there's no marriage that is works-based. No one is earning their kisses with their spouse. Right? Those things are already given, those promises. This is why Scripture can speak in the present sense that these promises are ours in Christ Jesus. They're already ours as long as we maintain the covenant relationship. See, very different than the idea of like climbing some ladder to get to those things. That's works-based salvation. And again, there's no evidence for that anywhere uh, in uh, the biblical text. Okay, so uh, argument number three, Scripture supports a works-based salvation. Scripture supports a works-based salvation. So there's verses that they will use to attempt to support this position. Here's uh, the biblical response. Understanding the marital paradigm and or what Paul means by works of the law immediately diffuses the need to view uh, their supporting scripture verses as promoting merit. And so I want to take you through uh, s- several of these uh, right now. This, by the way, is the, the longest of the three points, and, it's, and it is, as I've already mentioned, it's the foundation of everything that follows. So it's important that we understand this. The first text is Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. And uh, this is the the account of the rich young ruler. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the text. We'll read uh, verses, uh, as I have it here, uh, verses 16 through 19. And behold, a man came up to him, to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbors yourself. Okay, so uh, their uh, take on that is, is uh, see, Jesus is, uh, when this guy asks him about what you need to do to, uh, to gain heaven, uh, to be saved, you, you, you need to earn your way by keeping the commandments. Guy comes, asks him the question, what do I need to do, uh, again, to have eternal life, uh, Keep the commandments. Jesus is teaching here a works-based salvation. Okay? Uh, turn over to Luke uh, chapter 10. Keep your finger in here, by the way. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 28. A little bit different scenario, this time with a lawyer. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbors yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. And so again, from the evangelical's perspective, they would say, uh, see, the only way to get to heaven is, to, uh, is to, to earn it. To earn it. 
by keeping the commands. And again, going back to the Westminster Confession of Faith, to do that perfectly, which we'll deal with in the second point uh, uh, more uh, explicitly. But again, that's, that's what you need to do. Okay? Uh, well, uh, the biblical response uh, to these, and, and hopefully the way that I've, I've laid this out for you, you can see the reasonableness in it. Again, remember, let our reasonableness be evident to all. That's important. Uh, otherwise, we're just, just volleying the serve back over it. They say something, they get done, we don't listen to it, and we just volley it back and they do the same. We don't want to do that. Uh, we need to be able to reason with them. That's what it means to be reasonable. Okay? And hopefully from what I've given you here, uh, you can see the reasonable in this. Let's start with the rich young ruler. Uh, well, actually both of them. The rich young ruler, which is uh, Matthew 19, as well as the lawyer in Luke 10, uh, were both Jews. Okay, that's the first place to start. How do we know that? Because Jesus makes it clear uh, that he, during his time, his earthly ministry, he was only going to the lost sheep of Israel. So clearly, whatever these two men were, they were Jews. Okay? Well, why is that important? Well, that tells us that they were already in covenant with God. That was the place of the Jew. They had already gained covenant relationship with God. The gain piece is already done. Uh, there are similar inquiries. Teacher, what must I do? That's, uh, uh, that's uh, Matthew 19. Or what shall I do? That's Luke 10. To have, that's Matthew 19. Or to inherit, that's Luke 10, eternal life. Their similar inquiries are not an allusion to works-based salvation, but rather a question regarding maintenance. They're already in covenant. They want to know now what they need to do to maintain what they've gained. What do they need to do, or what do they need to be faithfully obeying to secure the eternal blessings promised to them by the covenant. That's the question they're coming to Jesus with. And see, understanding the marriage covenant, the, the, the components of gain and maintain are, are vitally important. And, and making sure that uh, the person that you're speaking to, the evangelical, understands that. See, if they don't have that framework, all they hear is works-based salvation. And so getting them to understand that, right, these people, both of these men, the rich young ruler and lawyer, are just asking that question. What do I need to obey to secure those blessings that had already been promised uh, to them? Now, here's the piece that I'm hoping makes this reasonable. Hence the reason Jesus' answer in both cases pertains to the law. If you would enter, here's Matthew, what he says to the guy in Matthew, the rich young ruler, if you would enter life, keep or be faithful to the commandments. In Luke's, it's, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now think about the cruel joke here, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I have to, uh, for the rest of what the evangelical believes. Uh, look at the second point, because we, we, we need it for what I'm about to say here. You must be perfect to get into heaven, and no one is perfect. And remember again what the Westminster Confession says, the same thing. And, and, and so how cruel is Jesus, really? Both of these individuals are asking legitimate questions. What do I need to do to get into heaven? What do I need to do to be saved, to inherit, to have eternal life? And if Jesus, as the evangelical believes, uh, knew that they could not do it, that they could not be perfect, that he would need to do it on their behalf, why does he respond according to the law? You see, they're using this to support their system. They say, oh, you see it is, it's workspace, but you can't do it. Well, that's pretty cruel of Jesus. Why didn't Jesus say, look, 
Uh, what you need to do, you can't do, but don't worry, I'm going to do it for you. Because that's point number three. Jesus was perfect and so obeyed or earned our way to heaven for us. See that? Why didn't Jesus do that? And uh, some of the responses that I've gotten over the years is, well, that's what he did do after the fact. That's what he did off screen. You don't get that part in the movie. But he did that off screen. He did, he did actually go up to him after they, as it says, you know, the rich young ruler goes away sad. Jesus pulled him aside and it's like, hey man, sorry about that. I was, I was being a little bit cruel there. Um, but I'm going to take care of it for you. Why does he tell them that they need to obey if they can't ultimately do it because they can't ultimately be perfect? You see, it doesn't make any sense. To be reasonable, I can say, yes, I can understand why you think it's works-based, but why would Jesus respond that way if he knew they couldn't do it? Why would he set them up purposely for a fall? And See, this is the way you need to reason with them. Jesus doesn't do that. Clearly, Jesus is not being cruel in his response. And yet, Jesus' response in both cases pertains to the law. They come to him with a legitimate question. I want to be saved, Jesus. What do I need to do? And Jesus doesn't give them the evangelical gospel. Bow right now, close your eyes, and say this prayer with me. Why doesn't he do that? He had the perfect opportunity to do that. He doesn't do it. Instead, he says, what's the law say? What's the law say? How does it read to you? Well, the commandments teach, right? Keep, be faithful to them, to the commandments. And uh, notice, by the way, going back to uh, both of our texts, both in Matthew 19 as well as in Luke 10, uh, in Matthew 19, it is followed by a recitation of the Ten Commandments. Uh, you go back to Matthew 19, in verses 18 and 19. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. So Jesus follows up by reciting from the Ten Commandments. Why would he do that? I mean, I mean that's just, that's, it's, it's, like, it's like putting the knife in and then, and then twisting it, right? I mean, at the end of the day, if, it, if, if it's really not about that, yes, it's workspace, but you can't do it, I'm going to do it for you. Why does he continue with the cruel joke? Why doesn't he stop? Again, this is taking their position, right? Playing with their deck of cards and beating them at their own game. Why does he continue down this road? And in Luke, uh, it's not a recitation of the Ten Commandments, but rather, it's followed by an affirmation of its summary. The greatest commandment. Look at verses 27 and 28 again. Uh, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God. So this is coming from the lawyer, because uh, Jesus says, what is written in law? How do you read it? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and with all your strength, and your neighbors yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Why does Jesus do that? Going back to what our buddy R. Scott Clark had to say, remember he said, this is all over the Old Testament, which shows that it's a works-based salvation. And it is all over the Old Testament, but is that what it's pointing to? Do this and live. Here Jesus is using it in the New Testament. Is this just people that Jesus didn't care about? Is that what it is? He's like, there's no way they're going to be able to do it, but I'm going to tell them that anyway. Where's the rest of the story, in other words? Right? They would say, well, this is where you start, right? This is how they, they train street preachers. You go out in the street, and everybody walks by. It's like, have you ever lied? You ever looked at a woman with lust in your heart? You know, and everybody has, and so everybody's like, oh, you know. And it's like, all right, there's the law. Okay, now, you can't do it. You're already not perfect, so now say this prayer with me. Why doesn't Jesus do that? Maybe that's what this is. Jesus just lead them along until they finally realize they can't do it and then Jesus is going to be like, okay, now, now I'm, I'm, here's the good news. I'm going to do it for you. We, we're never told that. 
Never are we told that. As a matter of fact, the way that, uh, that, uh, uh, that his disciples, for example, in Matthew 19 respond is, they're listening to all this, and Peter says, behold, we've done everything that you've said. And we've left family, we've left everything for you. And Jesus says, you will receive a hundred times as much in heaven. Jesus didn't say, oh, Peter. I was setting the guy up, man. Don't you get it? It was never about that. Peter, stop that. Try, stop, Peter, uh, trying to work your way to heaven. How dare you? Oh, that's the point where Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, is it? No, it's actually not. Uh, but, but that's what you would think. Based on what the evangelical thinks. But he doesn't do that, right? Instead, we're told the rich young ruler goes away sad because he wasn't willing to do what Jesus said, which was, again, keep, which, by the way, that word keep all over, both in the Old and the New, refers to being faithful. Be faithful as it relates to the commandments. So, again, these passages which seem to them to, uh, to support uh, this idea of a workspace salvation actually backfires on them if you, if you really read through and you consider what's being said by Jesus, or how Jesus responds. And hopefully you can see the, the way that I've reasoned through that, and you'll be able to do the same thing uh, with others. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, uh, and I've combined uh, these verses together, uh, 3.12 and then Romans 10 uh, and Romans 11. So if you turn there to the first, uh, Galatians. And this is a... Uh, Another verse that that, uh, gets thrown around as it relates to this idea that uh, what we do have, at least in the Old Testament, and this is where they'll try to make the distinction, even though uh, their own scholars will tell you that it's all both in the New and the Old, is uh, both works-based at its foundation, it's just that Jesus does it for us, uh, which is what they would say is being picked up here. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them, which is, look, very similar, again, uh, to what Jesus uh, says in Luke 10. Do this and you shall live, right? And so here they would say, and how they would interpret this passage is, is notice, the law, that's, that's old school, uh, that's Old Testament, and uh, that wasn't by faith. That was, you were saved by work. So at the very least, they're going to they're gonna pick that piece up and say, the Old Testament was all about earning your way to heaven, which the implication of that means is that, uh, that no one got to heaven because if you had to earn it and you had to be perfect to do it, then nobody's in heaven from the Old Testament. Nobody, Moses, nobody. But now it's all a fake because that's clearly uh, the distinction that Paul must be making uh, here uh, by this statement. But the law is not of faith. It's something different, meaning it, it operates or its mechanics are different for salvation. Okay? Uh, taking that then or that understanding, and by the way, again, remember where we're at here, we're talking about how the evangelical understands these uh, verses. Uh, taking that uh, thought then in or back to Romans chapter 10, Chapter 10, verses 4 through 9. For Christ is the end of law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And uh, one time we had a a little skirmish here and uh, two individuals, two brothers, uh, were sure that I had this this wrong. And uh, and that's what they did. They read it just that way. Boy, with emphasis. For Christ is the end of the law. Because if you do that, With emphasis, boy, then no argument, right? The end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And there again, there's that phrase, you know, if you do them, you shall live. 
but the righteousness based on faith does not, do, 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 says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Oh, boy, that seems pretty clear, right? Nothing to do with the law. We should have nothing to do uh, with the law. That's old school. So I don't care what R.C. Sproul says, that it's all by works uh, anyway. Uh, that's old school. That's not new. Now it's, now it's by faith. Uh, even though, to be fair, uh, R.C. is saying the same thing. He's just saying that uh, Jesus takes care of it for us, and so all we need now uh, to do is have faith. And then finally, Romans 11, uh, 6. Uh, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And as I told you, uh, if we're going to understand these verses, and most especially those that we're in right now, we need to understand what that uh, that phrase works or works of the law, uh, or sometimes just the law, uh, what it refers to. And uh, to plug that all into, again, uh, this marital understanding or marital uh, framework that is so important to understand what is being said. So in response then to all of these verses, to gain justification or righteousness or salvation, which those terms, diakosune, uh, which can be translated either justification uh, or righteousness, uh, which they both refer to just salvation, uh, to gain that under the old covenant required performing the Sabbath rites of circumcision and sacrifice, which we already talked about. That's how you gained or entered into that relationship. That's where it started. And uh, that's what Paul means by the law, works of the law, or works, as it is here uh, uh, in 11.6, Romans 11.6, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Will you tra- trace that back through the letter? And it's Paul it uses that term works or works the law or the law, all referring to the same thing. What does it refer to? Well, it refers not to the entirety of the law, uh, but these initial Sabbath rites, which were a part of the law, uh, which were the means uh, to entering into the relationship, circumcision and sacrifice which have now been accomplished through faith in Christ, who has become our circumcision and our sacrifice. So so using modern-day marriage as the analogy, right? We say, okay, the way you get married uh, today is you have rings, and uh, you come up and you take those vows, and then after you've taken those vows... Uh, what you do is you perform the exchange of the rings. That's that's how we 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 consummate that, or not consummate it, but that's how we uh, that's how the ceremony is. Uh, uh, that's how the ceremony operates, I guess. Uh, but but that that's that's the rites of passage, right? That's how you do it. That's how you enter into it, right? That's 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 at least uh, in in uh, in in the modern world where the point at which we'll say, you know, I I now pronounce you, you know man and wife, or you may kiss the bride, right? Uh, but again, you have this, these sacred rites that take place, and even in betrothal, which the world calls an engagement, there is the exchange of a ring, the ring that is given to the woman, right? And so uh, the same thing was true as it related to the marital, or is true as it relates to the marital relationship that we enter into with Christ. And what God established is the means to doing that again, and this is how you should be explaining it to them. 
was circumcision and sacrifice. And faith in Jesus has uh, replaced that, but only in application. Because what is Jesus? He is our circumcision. He is our sacrifice. So, so the, the, the rites of passage are still there. It's just what it looks like in application. Why do I say that? Well, you should know the text. Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Now, going up to uh, what Mark Knoll said, you know, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is no evangelical mind. Uh, this is going to be the big problem, right? There's a reason that they're probably where they're at. They like things a mile wide and an inch deep. And so you're, you're taking them out of the shallow end. You're, you're putting them now in the deep end. And this is where you need to be patient because their mind doesn't like to go there, right? The plasticity of their brain is, is not real good at this point. In their life, they, they sit around and watch talk shows all day long ignorance, right? So, so most of these people that are in the evangelical camp, they don't like to learn. And so you're going to need to be patient as you push them through this because this is as simple as it gets, right? There's no way to, 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 to wonky work around this and say, well, here's a verse here and here's a verse here and this is it, right? You need to understand of how, the history of how it all works, how it developed, really the evolution of salvation in Scripture, if you're going to understand what the authors of Scripture, most especially those in the New Testament, are saying. Right? Because they're making reference to all of these things. Well, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, and I've given you a larger section here than just circumcision, so you can see that he picks up both circumcision and sacrifice, these two Sabbath rites of passage. Uh, in him you were also circumcised in Christ with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Uh, if you're good at grammar, you know then what he's saying there by having been buried with him in baptism, that's the place where you were circumcised. Now, why would Paul bring that up unless that's still important, unless that's still in force, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There's the sacrifice piece. Both of those accomplished in the waters of baptism as we are united with the work of Christ. What is the work of Christ that we put faith in? That he has become our circumcision. That he has become our sacrifice. That through faith in Christ, we now have what we need to enter into relationship with God. What's always been there, what God established from old, is still required today. Which is why God can say in places like Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 12, don't add and don't take away. That includes even under the New Testament. And so you don't take away circumcision. That's why Paul addresses it. You don't take away sacrifice. That's why the entirety of the New Testament addresses it. Both of these are still the rites of passage, the ring, uh, the ring exchange, if you will, to gain relationship with God. And now we have that through Christ. Hence the reason Paul is fighting so often in Scripture over these issues and the issue of circumcision and sacrifice always comes up in these various contexts. And you'll see that even in what I... Uh, say here. So Jesus is the new application of the Sabbath rites, which now, by such grace, this is picking up from what uh, Romans eleven six says, which by which now by such grace allows Gentiles, even Gentiles, those who are once without hope and without God. That's what Ephesians two twelve says about us. Prior to this, we were without hope and without God. Those not given the Jewish Sabbath rites for entrance. Romans chapter three, Paul addresses that issue. 
After saying something that would have been highly offensive to the Jews, saying even the Gentiles, if they follow the law, even though they're Gentiles, will not God consider that circumcision, even though they haven't received circumcision? And he knew how offensive that was to the Jewish people. As a matter of fact, in Acts, uh, when he's uh, being arrested, uh, you remember he says to the the Roman guard, he says, let me speak to them. And it says he speaks to them in their own language. He speaks to them in Hebrew. And as he begins to speak, the people quiet down. They quiet down until he mentions the Gentiles. As soon as he mentions the Gentiles, they want nothing to do with him. And so the fact that he's saying Gentile dogs, which is what we were before, without hope and without God, the fact that, that, that now we're a part of it was highly offensive, which then leads to what uh, he, he, he knows, he, he uh, assumes or anticipates will be their question. What advantage then, Romans chapter 3, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? If everybody can just get in, what advantage? And he says, well, there was, there was incredible advantage. To you it was given the Sabbath rites of entrance before. And that's exactly what he's picking up in Ephesians 2. At one time, you Gentiles, you need to be grateful among uh, most of all. Because you, you of all people, you, you at one time were without hope. Those rights were not given to you. And now they have been given to you. Not in some physical way. Not in the old way. Not according to the old application. It's not circumcision literally of the flesh, but circumcision of the heart. The thing that the prophets spoke of. It's now sacrifice of the true Lamb of God. Again, something that the uh, prophets spoke of, Isaiah 53. And so through these things, you now get to enter God's salvific rest, which is what Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 are all about. Hence the reason Paul can speak of faith as upholding the law and at the same time refer to it as the end of the law for righteousness, going back to that Romans 10, uh, 4 passage. How is Christ the end of the law for righteousness? For righteousness. For gaining diakasune. How is he the end of that? Because through Christ we gain that. We don't need to go back to gaining that through literal circumcision and literal bloody animal sacrifices. Because we gain both of those things. The circumcision and the sacrifice that used to gain that righteousness. That positional righteous standing before God. Which is what justification refers to. We gain that through faith. In Christ, the one who became those two things for us. The end of that part of the law? Yes, absolutely. But the end of the moral commands? Really? We're going to see, unfortunately, that's what a lot of people think, even professors, uh, evangelical uh, professors. But if that's the case, then you have a very schizophrenic Paul. Because in Romans chapter 3, verse 31, he says, do we by this negate the law or do we nullify the law? And he says, by no means, we uphold the law. By this faith, in 3.28, he says, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Do we, do we negate the law? No, we uphold it. Why? Because through Christ, through these two aspects that he has taken for us, uh, we are upholding it because we are circumcised and we have made sacrifice. We uphold the law. And yet at the same time, There is an end of the law, that portion of the law, its application. The old application is gone while the principle remains intact. That's what Paul means by reference to law, or again, works of the law, uh, or rather, that what Paul means by reference to the law, or again, works of the law, are these various Sabbath rites is confirmed by the overall context. Now, don't miss that. And there's a lot here. Don't miss that. 
Because what they're going to do is they're going to say this. Ah, oh, that's just a bunch of poppycock. You, you're, just, you're the one that's conflating or confusing the issue. That's not what he's referring to. He's referring to all of the law. Then why is it when you go to those places where he's supposedly getting rid of the law, he, it's all about circumcision and sacrifice? Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. This is, what, this is why Paul writes the letter to the Galatians. He says, he says uh, when I came to Antioch, I think it's Antioch, he says, Peter, had, or Peter shows up at Antioch and he separated himself from the Gentiles. He wouldn't eat with them anymore. He wouldn't eat with the uncircumcised anymore. And he says, how is it that, uh, that you, a Jew, though you live like a Gentile, now are excluding yourself from the Gentiles? Do you not know that a man is not justified by those things, by circumcision, but through faith in Christ? The whole point that he's making is in relation to these Sabbath rites of passage. That is so clear from the context. As a matter of fact, by 5.6, he says, if you receive circumcision, then Christ is of no value to you. So he shows that what's juxtaposed to faith in Christ is circumcision, not the entirety of the law. It's clear. It's super explicit. Same thing in Romans chapter 3, verses 28 through 30. There he says, we maintain that a man is justified apart from the works of the law. And then what does he bring up in the very next verses? Circumcision. Why does he do that if that's not what it's really about? Chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, that Abraham became uh, the father of both the circumcised and the uncircumcised through faith. Again, he's dealing with Sabbath rites of passage. What you need to do to enter into that relationship. Not the removal of the entirety law. Again, this is their position. That brings us then to the second thing they believe. As we've already mentioned, you must be perfect to get into heaven and no one is perfect. Here's the street preacher. Have you ever done this? If you've done anything, they they preach the Ten Commandments. If you've done any of it, then aha, gotcha, right? Checkmate. Uh, You need to be perfect to go to heaven. And one of the texts that they'll train you to use is Matthew uh, chapter 5. And you can turn there. And hopefully uh, my my explanation here will be reasonable. You'll see this. And uh, you'll be able to be reasonable with them on this. Uh, One of the biggest flaws or maybe even the, the biggest flaw, at least from the interpretive side of evangelicalism, is they, they do what we call cherry-picking, right? They drop in and they, they pull verses out of their context, and you can't, you can't do that, right? You can't do that with anything. Uh, you need to understand this is just part of basic reading comprehension, where it's coming from, and, and such is the case with Matthew 5.48. So here's the verse they read, or they'll turn you to. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It therefore indicates that there's more to it than just this statement. This is a conclusion based on something that's been said prior. That's what the therefore is there for. And so uh, what you need to do is ask the question, well, what is it about? Well, here's the the response, and we'll pick that up in the response. The context of this verse, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The context of this verse makes clear that Jesus' use of the word perfect is in reference to the scope of our love or righteous treatment of others and not the standard required to enter heaven or be saved. Let me just read that again and then we're going to read the verses. Here's what I'm telling you and I think you'll find it to be reasonable. The context of this verse, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, uh, is not about the standard that's required to get into heaven. It's not about keeping the commandments. Rather, what Jesus is referring to when he talks about this perfection is the scope of our love or righteous treatment of others, which, as Jesus is going to tell us in verses 43 through 47, needs to include 
our enemies as well as our friends. We need to be righteous to all people. Okay, so you go back to those verses. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rains on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Not even, uh, do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. How in this context is the heavenly Father being perfect? By keeping all, God, all his commands? No, by the fact that the scope of his care extends beyond just the righteous. He causes the sun to shine on both the righteous and the wicked. He causes the rain to come upon the crops of both the righteous and the wicked. That's the context. This doesn't have anything to do with keeping the commandments of God. As we already saw, as it relates to the commandments of God, what is required? Deuteronomy 28, be faithful. By the way, that's, that's, that's one verse. We could go all throughout the Bible, including the New Testament, and find this everywhere. Well done, thou good and faithful, not perfect, servant. So uh, to pick this up as this is what you need to do, which is always write the checkmate in the game. Uh, you're the street preacher, and you tell them that, and then they say, yep, I've not been perfect. Oh, I gotcha, right? And again, remember, no one can be perfect. Well, again, it misses the point because we don't have to be perfect. We have to be faithful, and uh, we can do that. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14 says that explicitly. As a matter of fact, God says, don't you dare say that you can't. Okay. Number three, here's what also they believe. And, and by the way, this is, I say this all the time, listening. Anytime someone speaks, you need to listen. You know why? Not because you necessarily respect them, but because you respect words. Words are power, and words are the means by which God made the universe. You respect words. And so when people speak, you need, to, you need to listen to what they're saying, not just be revved up to give your response back, which may mean asking them questions first. What do you mean by that? Taking the time. That's how you love people, is by listening to the words that they're using, not assuming, right? And so I need to, I need to listen for what they're saying and say, why do you say that? Where is that coming from? Right? That's, that's what reasonableness looks like as well giving them the benefit of the doubt. So when they say, you must be perfect, and you take them to this text, then you need to ask the question, can you help me to understand why that's what Jesus is talking about here? Because it seems to be that he's talking about something entirely different. Can we go back to the prior verses and look at that? Number three then, Jesus was perfect and so obey or earned our way to heaven for us. So, so, so get the, the flow or how they're building off this foundation. Okay, the only way to get to heaven is... Uh, to earn your way to heaven. There used to be a, as a matter of fact, D.A. Carson for years probably still did endorse this. It was a little uh, out of Australia. It was a little track that was made and it was called, I think it was called like Two Ways to Heaven. And you go through this little track and it would say, you know, here's the first way. Uh, you have to earn your way, uh, uh, you have to earn your way to heaven. Uh, and then it would get to the end of that piece and say, but to do that, you have to be perfect. You can't do it because the first way doesn't work. So where do you go to the second one? Well, Jesus earned it for you. So now all you need to do is just, you know, flip to the back of the little pamphlet and read the sinner's prayer and accept him into your heart, right? Make him your personal savior, et cetera, et cetera, uh, by faith. If you do that, because he earned it for you, right? And so you can see the flow uh, from what we start with. They believe it's works-based. 
to, to, to earn it. That's what workspace means. Merit-based, workspace, all the same thing. You have to earn it and you have to be perfect. You can't, you can't do it because nobody's perfect. But here's the good news. And so this is where I say the law is the bad news. Tell everybody, first of all, that they suck. Then tell them how Jesus doesn't suck. He did it for you. And that's what Luther called preaching the law and the gospel. The law is the bad news. Funny that in Psalm 119 and elsewhere, David praises the law. Uh, you must be perfect. You can't be perfect. Number three, Jesus, however, was perfect and so obeyed or earned our way to heaven for us. Here's the first argument that they'll use, or if they're learned, they would use uh, to support this, or they may bring up, not necessarily the first argument, but it's known as the doctrine of the active obedience of Christ. And, and here's what this doctrine, don't get tripped up on the active piece, the passive pieces we're going to talk about here in a second. This is just so that you understand where this is coming from. The active obedience of Christ teaches essentially this. Besides dying on the cross for sin, sorry, that's missing there, uh, Christ, that's called Christ's passive obedience. So what Christ did in dying is called his passive obedience. Jesus also perfectly obeyed the law for us as the means to, and not earing, I'm not talking about piercing your ear, uh, to earning your way to heaven as a means to earning our way to heaven, okay? So, so the, the passive, the do, what's known as the doctrine of the passive obedience of Christ refers to what he did in giving himself as a sacrifice. Then they'll talk about the active obedience of Christ, which is what he did in obeying the law for us to earn our way uh, to heaven. So they say, uh, that's what the doctrine of the active obedience of Christ teaches. That's what Christ did. Uh, well, here's the biblical response. Christ's perfect obedience, according to Scripture, was only for the purpose of becoming the sinless sacrifice that God required for sin, for his passive obedience. That's it. Scripture never mentions anywhere. And, and, and this is the first thing you need to say to them. Show me somewhere in Scripture wherever, where, where it says that Jesus obeyed on our behalf. Because you're not going to find it. It does say that Jesus was perfect. Says, so you're saying Jesus, Jesus wasn't perfect? He didn't obey God's law perfectly? No, I didn't say that. He did. But not for the purpose of earning our way to heaven through doing our obedience for us. You see, that goes back to this thing, you have to be perfect, first of all. And you can't be, so Jesus had to do it for you. That's not true to begin with. It's not workspace to begin with, or to begin to begin with, right? None of that's true. And, 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 and as it relates to this particular point, there's nowhere in Scripture that says that. Nowhere. Rather, it does say, yes, Jesus was perfect. Yes, Jesus obeyed God's law perfectly. But he did it what? So that he could be the lamb without blemish. Isn't that what God requires? A lamb without blemish. And what that means from, in moral categories, as it relates to human beings, is, is a person who is without sin. For him to take on our sin, he needed to be without sin. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is Paul's whole argument as it relates to the resurrection of Christ. And so, and so he was perfect, yes, but not for the purpose of obeying for us, but rather so that he could be our sinless sacrifice. The scripture refers only to Christ's passive obedience, i.e. that he died for our sins when it comes to securing our salvation. That's Hebrews 10, uh, 14 through 18 and... Uh, by the way, I'll just say for those of you who have been in uh, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, this is where, and years ago when we went through this, I'm talking years and years ago, back when we were in the shopping plaza, and I was teaching systematic theology back there, I pointed this out. Uh, Wayne Grudem, because he's an evangelical, uh, he lays it out this way, and it's, and it's, it's, it's severely dis disturbing to me, even back then. He, he has three circles, Venn diagrams, so he has 
circles. One, two, three. And he says, um, the first circle, he has all these minus signs. And he says, this is what you are in your sin, because you're not perfect. And he says, what Jesus did by dying on the cross was he, he, he wiped that out. So then you become the middle circle, which is you're just blank. That's what he says. And he says, now that you're blank, you now have to get positive. You've got to get obedience to the law because it's still a workspace system. You're no longer in the hole, so you need to get in the positive because being neutral is not enough. And, and so then Christ died, and he, or, or Christ obeyed. So he died to get rid of this, and then he obeyed, which, think about the chronology, it's actually backwards. Because if the end goal is to just get all the positive over here, and they believe in what's called imputation, that what Christ did is imputed to us, okay? okay which, on the side of what Christ did for us in, 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 in washing away our sins, true, yes, what he did is now imputed to us, okay? Or given to us. Uh, but they say, well, what he did in obeying us was put there. So you go from negative circles to blank circle to positive by what he did in obeying. Well, at the end of the day, the argument could then be made is, why did he need to die at all? If the end goal is just to impute what he did in obeying, why didn't he just obey and then go back to heaven? Like Enoch, he walked with God and he was no more. Why all this death stuff over here? He's able to cancel out the sin, but if you're going to just impute his righteousness, that, that'll take care of itself. Right? But you have this middle circle, and that's not, again, how Scripture speaks of it. I want to show you that. Instead of there being three circles, if we were to lay this out in a Venn diagram, it's two. What Jesus did in going to the cross and wiping that out made us positive. There is no middle circle. As a matter of fact, and here's what makes it severely disturbing. The only religion that believes that I know of, that believes in a middle neutral circle, is Roman Catholicism. The man was born neutral. You see, and that's disturbing because they're the ones that, that, that speak against the most against the Roman Catholics. Now, the Roman Catholics are, uh, are just as much a cult as evangelicalism is, but, but it's, it's just it's ironic to me that Wayne Grudem would do that. And uh, I want to read to you now Hebrews 10 in light of that. And I want you, you tell me, you see three circles or you see two? For by a single offering, talking about his death, not as a, a, obedience, obviously, offering is referring to what he did on the cross. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are now being sanctified. He has perfected. Okay, so he, is, he has cleansed us completely of our sins. How did he do that? He has perfected. He's put positive signs in our circle. How did he do that? that, that, that nobody, if, if I went to any group and said, hey, hey, uh, Wayne, um, so I've got, I, got, I got this word, he perfected for all time. Is that a neutral circle? Is that a nothing? Because they're not calling that perfected. And yet, what Scripture says is, is how Jesus did that is not obeying for us, but rather by his offering, by his passive obedience, by his death, that's it. By his death, he made us righteous before God. By his death. Uh, skip down to verse 18. Uh, or, or, or here, here now uh, is Jeremiah 31, so let's continue. For by a single offering, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant I'll make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws on their heart and write them on their minds. And he adds, I'll remember their sins no more and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is then forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Jesus, through his death, perfected us. By the way, you know what's really, really, really cool about verse 16? This is, again, coming from Jeremiah 31. After what I read to you, after verse 32, this is verse 33. This is the covenant I'll make with them. I'll put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Notice the author is using this to confirm what it is that Christ has done by his uh, single offering, which means this. He is saying uh, that 
Christ has put on our hearts, get this, the law of sacrifice. This is where you'll see people uh, say, well, he, he, he's, already, uh, uh, he, he's already put the law inside of us so that we'll do it. That has nothing to do with uh, the moral commands. He's using this to support what Christ did in his sacrifice. He's saying he has put that on your heart. The law of sacrifice for sin Notice the author is using that to support what Jesus has done in perfecting us. But again, the point, not to miss, is how does Jesus make us righteous before God? By obeying for us or by simply just sacrificing for us? By sacrificing for us. Argument number two, Scripture supports Jesus obeying or earning our salvation for us. Uh, you, you, you should know the text, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 this, by the way, is what you get when you don't get practicum. <clears throat> you get this kind of... Okay, 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. How do they understand that passage? That means that Jesus is telling you he came to, uh, to do them for us. Plerao is the term. Uh, I came to fulfill them. I came to do them for you. I didn't come to abolish them, uh, but I came to do them for you, which I don't have this argument in here, but just think about that. Isn't that really kind of abolishing them if you do them for us? If parents establish chores for their children, and then the parents do the chores for their children, isn't that an abolishing of their chores? Hey, okay. sounds like it to me. Here's the response to what's actually being taught here. Unlike the religious leaders of his day, Jesus did not come to abolish or excuse the law away. That's why he says, I didn't come to abolish it but rather to see that it was fulfilled, which is how this infinitive aorist, plerao, uh, can be interpreted uh, or understood. Uh, to be fulfilled. I came to see them fulfilled in my people. That's what he means. As such, uh, the point Jesus is not making is his fulfillment of the law on our behalf. It is instead his solemn promise and identification as God's promised mosaic prophet. Matthew 18, 15 through 19. What does it say there? Moses says, hey, God's going to send a prophet like me in the coming days. What kind of a prophet is a prophet like Moses? One who preaches the law. One who enforces the law. Think about it. And that's confirmed, by the way, in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 7, that it was indeed Jesus. Jesus comes, making this as his promise. Hey, guys, I'm not here to be like your flaky, false religious teachers who are finding excuses and ways around. That's Matthew 15, right? He says that. You're, you're replacing God's law with your own laws, the doctrines of men. He says, I didn't come to do that. I came to be, and this is a, his identification as that Mosaic prophet, to make sure that it once more becomes the plumb line for the people of God. And the context supports this. Uh, going back to verse 1, what we're told uh, about Jesus. Uh, seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain. And uh, when we were in these uh, verses some years back, I told you this. Uh, the people were, at this point, for Jesus. They believed he was Messiah. They did believe that then he would be the fulfillment of this Mosaic prophet to come. And so they were in ready expectation that he was going to do things that mimicked or imitated Moses. And what's the first thing he does? Like Moses, in giving the law to God's people, he ascends a mountain. And like Moses, what's the first thing that comes out of his mouth? I did not come to abolish the law. I came to see, like Moses, that it's fulfilled, that it's enforced in God's people. Second line of support, 
as it relates to this being the proper interpretation of Matthew 5.17, I did not come to see it abolished, I came to see it fulfilled. If Jesus meant by that that he was going to fulfill it for us, going back to the evangelical argument, we'll see he's saying right there he's going to do it. If that's the case, uh, then heaven and earth should have passed away. Why do I say that? Well, look at verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. If Jesus accomplished the law for us during his earthly life, then heaven and earth already passed away. What are we doing here? That makes zero sense. As a matter of fact, going back to that little skirmish we had years ago, some of you may remember this. Uh, after all the, the heavy, breathy talk and reading scripture, all I did was go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, and said, has heaven and earth passed away? Because according to Jesus, if he's the one that's going to fulfill it for us, then heaven and earth has passed away. And at that point, his brother of the two said, we're wrong, we're wrong. That was all I did. I, that's all I, I went to one verse and said, has heaven and earth passed away? If that's what it means, then heaven and earth should have passed away. This is the reasonableness, guys, that you need to have when you're talking to them. Because notice Jesus says, if it's been accomplished, you say, okay, you say that Jesus is going to do it for us. Then he did it for us during his earthly life. You, you believe that because your scholars believe that. We're going to see one of those here in just a second. Uh, but, but you say, that's what you're saying. We don't have to because he did it for us. Because we couldn't do it, by the way, anyway, because we can't be perfect. Okay, well, if that's the case, go into the very next verse. That means then that heaven and earth has passed away because all has been accomplished. He fulfilled it for us. He accomplished it for us. Second problem with that is, the verses right after that, 19 and uh, 20. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees who were hypocrites who didn't keep the law, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's the question. Here's the reasonable question. Why such warnings from Jesus if he's taking care of the law for us? Who cares whether I relax it? or Who cares? He fulfilled it all for me anyway. You see, that makes zero sense. Are you, following? Are you tracking with me? Uh, verses 21 through 48, which is the remainder of the chapter, Jesus starts down this path then to say, uh, you have heard that it was said. Notice that in verse 21. You have heard that it was said of old, but I say to you. Uh, when I went through these uh, different sections, verse 27, you have heard that it was said. Uh, verse 31, it was also said. Again, verse 33, you have heard that it was said of old. Uh, when we went through these, I told you that that was a common rabbinic phrase to indicate that what was going to be said now was a correction of a wrong understanding in relation to God's law. And that's what Jesus is doing. So here's the question as you go through each of these parts in those verses, 21 through 48. Why make such corrections if once more fulfillment is this concern, not ours? If Jesus is just going to do it for us anyway, why do we really care if we got it wrong? He's like, hey guys, the way you were understanding that portion of the law was wrong, let me just correct that for you. You're like, yeah, you know what? I got better things to do with my time. You already said you're going to do it for me, so what do I really care? Like the parent's like, you know, you don't do a good job cleaning your room, and so I just want to go over that. I'm going to do it for you, and I'm just going to keep doing it for you so you don't even need to worry about that, but, but I'm just going to tell you what, what you were doing wrong. Kid's like, yeah. You're going to do it for me, so just do it, right? 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 It makes zero sense in the context. The context destroys their interpretation. 
That's what you need to show them. The context itself destroys their interpretation or understanding that Jesus somehow does it or earns it for us. And again, the verses I've given to you are, if I'm playing their side, if I'm playing devil's advocate, these are the verses I'm going to use. And so are there others they may try to use? Yeah, but I, these, are, these are the best. These are the cream of the crop right here. Matter of fact, if they don't take you to these, you take them to these. You take them and say, oh, right here, look at this. Doesn't this support me? Say, oh, yeah, okay, let's see how it doesn't. Right? Number four, obedience to law. And you can see just the progression, hopefully, to law is nice, but only faith or faith alone is necessary. The law no longer has any authority. This is, a easy, this is the easy believism somebody mentioned earlier, but this is where ultimately they all end up. Even though they may get into pulpits and they may preach obedience, at the end of the day, because they believe the first three, this is where they all end up. Obedience is only nice, it can never be necessary. Only faith in Christ, the one who could be perfect in earning our way to heaven for us. That's the only way. Our obedience uh, means nothing, other than they'll say things like, well, it just shows that you really believed, right? Uh, This is the basis, here's their argument, of the sole fide gospel discovered by Martin Luther and the foundation of all evangelical Protestant doctrine. Uh, This is what uh, Martin Luther had to say about this. This is how important faith alone is, that this is the only thing you need. Obedience is nice, but it is absolutely not necessary to salvation. If this article of justification by faith alone stands, the church stands. If this article collapses, the church collapses. So this really is their foundation. But you can't really get to the heart of this unless you understand what goes before it. Okay? Um, Here's a rebuttal. You know it. Martin Luther rejected four books of the New Testament. Hebrews, Revelation, Jude, and James. This guy rejected four books of the New Testament because they taught directly against the Soli Fide Gospel. Most specifically, James 2.24, which is the only place in the entirety of Scripture, the absolute only place in the entirety of Scripture that ever uses the words faith and alone together to speak of salvation. The only place. And instead of affirming it, it negates it. James 2.24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Luther so hated this, and you'll, you'll see it, I put it in the, the footnotes. So aggravated was Luther by James 2.24 and its strict denial of the gospel he claimed to have discovered that he wrote in the margin text next to it, it is false, as though that somehow removes it. Okay? So, 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 so being reasonable, where do you go? This is the guy you're going to trust? You're basing your entire salvation and getting to heaven on a guy who denied four books of the New Testament. And the only place that even speaks of faith alone, it negates it rather than upholding it. And what that guy did, that scumbag did, was right next to God's word, it is false. Really? And, and you look at, I'm, you, you call me the cult? You call me the problem? Really? I'll tell you what, that's a crazy world that I don't want to be a part of. So there's the rebuttal of that. The second argument, Scripture supports faith as the only thing necessary to salvation and the law is canceled. We've already talked about this, but now we're going to see it. So Scripture supports faith as the only thing necessary to salvation and the law is canceled. So going now to the the Romans 3.28 text that I've mentioned, stay with me. I know it's getting late, but you need to know this. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. By the way, you know what Luther did here? Luther wrote the word alone after faith in his German translation of the Bible. 
even though it's not there in the original language. And, and by the way, everything I'm saying to you here today, you go and you look up if you doubt it. You look it up and you will find it. What I'm saying, that the support is there historically. I'm not just saying this, even evangelical scholars will tell you this. Luther wrote, it is false, in his Bible by James 2.24, and he added the word alone, even though it's not there in the original language. For we hold that a man is justified by faith. He so wanted it to be alone, he wrote alone in, apart from the works of the law. And their understanding of works of the law means you're earning your way to heaven, which we know that's not what that term is referring to. And by the way, remember I said that you'll see circumcision in relation to this right in this context? Look at what it says in verse 29. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Why is he bringing that up unless that is somehow related to what he means by works of the law? Right? Usage determines meaning, not my imagination. But again, here you have uh, this particular uh, verse, and this is the, the verse uh, that evangelicals will use to say that we are uh, saved by faith alone, even though, again, it's not there uh, in the text. I've, give, I've given you a footnote here, by the way, in relation to this, because here's something interesting. Now, speaking to Billy Graham, and I know a lot of you are, 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 are young, and you don't even, <laughs> it's amazing if you don't even know who Billy Graham is. Um, so Billy Graham was, he's considered the father of modern-day evangelicalism. And I remember growing up as a kid, and late at night, Billy Graham, they'd have his crusades would come on, probably like 11 o'clock at night, and, and, uh, and he would come on, and they'd, they'd show these crusades. He did stadiums around the world for years. He filled stadiums, and he would preach. Actually, the sinner's prayer, that's where it came from, that song, Just As I Am. He would use that before, and people would come forward. Um, and, and this is what, what Billy had to say. Billy the father of uh, uh, modern-day evangelicalism, uh, didn't even believe that conscious faith in Jesus was necessary. So even though most evangelicals will say uh, that uh, you need to put faith in Christ, Billy didn't actually believe that it was necessary to know who Jesus was to, to be saved or have faith. Here's a quote from Billy. I used to believe that pagans in far countries were lost if they did not have the gospel preached to them. I no longer believe that. I think that everybody that loves or knows Christ, whether they are conscious of it or not, they are members of the body of Christ. That includes the Catholic Church. I have no quarrel with the Catholic Church. God is calling people out of the world for his name. Whether they come from the Catholics, the Muslim world, or the Buddhist world, or the non-believing world, they are members of the body of Christ because they have been called by God. They may not know the name of Jesus, but they know in their hearts that they need something they do not have, and they turn to the only light they have, and I think they are saved, and they're going to be with us in heaven. So the next time somebody gives you, man, I remember when I first started, man, and I would say stuff against Billy Graham, and it was like, how dare you? Are you just reading that? You say, is that what you believe? Is that what you believe? You, you believe that, and you believe that kind of a man. Romans 10 says, how will, they, how, will they, how will they be saved unless they hear, and how will they hear unless someone comes and preaches to them the message of Christ? And yet Billy says, no, I don't believe that anymore. I don't believe that. And I've given you the reference point there for that. This, was, uh, this one is coming from an uh, interview with uh, uh, Robert Schuler in 1997, as well as his uh, 1977 address uh, at Notre Dame. So there are evangelicals and their father, right? Remember going back up to what the one gentleman said, uh, George Marston, about uh, evangelicals. You're an evangelical if you like Billy Graham. <laughs> they love Billy Graham. And uh, what Billy believed was that you didn't even have to have a conscious faith. You could be a Muslim. And if that's the light that you're turning to, you're going to heaven. You're a Christian whether you know it or not. Right? 
So uh, conscious faith is not true for uh, all evangelicals. Some of them even believe that uh, you don't even have to have that. Uh, But this second piece, as it relates to uh, the law, not having any more authority in our lives. Again, that's the Romans 10.4, right? The law, uh, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Uh, notice the quote there. This one I found highly, uh, again, disturbing. And that because um, I was not aware of it until my research just this week. This comes from uh, Dr. William Barrick. He says this, The law has no authority over Christians because it's been fulfilled by the death of Christ. That part's not shocking to me. Here's what's shocking to me. Notice the reference. Master's Seminary Journal. I know who Dr. William Barrick is. I've heard Dr. William Barrick speak at a Shepherd's Conference when I've been out there. He is one of the premier professors, I believe he's an Old Testament professor, at John MacArthur's Seminary. And what does he say? The law has no authority. No authority. Over Christians. There's this idea, no authority. And I say shock because I I didn't believe even John would go that far. Clearly one of his professors has gone that far and as it was published in uh, the Master's Seminary Journal this way. So the rebuttal to uh, these two things. As discussed, Romans 3.28 and 10.4, the law is the end of righteousness, are both in reference to the works law or Sabbath rites, circumcision and sacrifice, not the law in its entirety. Right? We don't still circumcise. And we don't sacrifice. That's a matter of fact, guys, you know this. Acts 15, just think about this. In Acts 15, what are, they, what, are they, what are they debating over? Whether or not Gentiles need to be literally circumcised. And they say, no. Christ is the end of that because he, we already have it in him. That's redundant. That's why Paul can say to the Galatians, if you receive that, you get rid of Christ. It's a closed system, right? It's perfect. Don't add, don't take away. You put something on the table, something's got to come off. And that's Paul's whole point. He's like, look, you get circumcised, you don't need Christ because that's now, and that's not going to work. So again, it's not dealing with the law in its entirety. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. It makes no sense if that's the case. Both of these texts are not referring to where works of the law is used in Romans 3.28 or the end of the law for righteousness in Romans 10.4 are not referring to the entirety of the law, but rather the Sabbath rites. If Paul were claiming the law no longer possessed authority in the life of a believer or was necessary to maintenance and faithfulness to get to heaven, then not only would he be in direct contradiction to Jesus' instruction to others, which we already saw, in Matthew 5, in Matthew 19, in Luke 10, not only would he be in contradiction to Jesus, but also himself. Why do I say that? Well, by Romans chapter uh, 13, same letter, by the way, same letter. Uh, Owe nothing, verse 8, to anyone except to love one another, for the one who loves uh, another has fulfilled the law. Whoa, Paul. Why are you talking about the law? The law has no authority. Didn't you just say that back in 10? In chapter 10, you said the law. It's the end of the law. If I take that as referring to the entirety of the law, why are you bringing up about fulfilling the law? And then look at verse 9. If it's not clear what he means, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to its neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. Why do we need to be concerned about fulfilling the law? Jesus fulfilled it for us. Christ is the end of the law, Paul. Well, clearly what Paul meant by the law was something other than what he's talking about right now. Clearly that must be the case. This is the same letter. So Paul is not in contradiction to Jesus and Paul's not in contradiction uh, to himself. So what, how do we reconcile? You see, the point is, is how do we, and this is how you be reasonable. We have to reconcile this. The word of God doesn't contradict itself, does it? So what it's referring to. 
the Sabbath rites, the, the means by which we enter into marriage covenant relationship with Jesus. Christ has become the end of that in the, th- in the sense that he becomes the application. But as it relates to keeping the moral commands as the means to maintaining that relationship, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if there's ever a, a kind of a, 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 a stake in the heart to uh, this particular issue, I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, Verse 19, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. We've talked about this before. Notice what he's bringing up, circumcision and uncircumcision. Which tells you that his concern with the law, when Paul speaks this way in negative, those are the things he's referring to. This is why they're fighting over in Acts 15. This is why Paul's writing the letters against those who want the Gentiles to be circumcised. He says that doesn't matter. What matters is keeping the commandments of God. Again, from the evangelical perspective, whoa, why are you talking about keeping the law? That's what the commandments of God are. What is he talking about? And clearly he's making a distinction within the law because was not being circumcised a part of the law? Paul's making a distinction between certain laws and others. This, by the way, is Leviticus 10.10. I love this. The the priests were to make that kind of a distinction between what I'm calling Sabbath rites and the moral code. Say, oh man, this is a lot of stuff. This is complicated. The only way you're ever going to reach them, if you really care about them, is to really understand what's Scripture talking about. And the first thing you need to do is you need to say, okay, if we're going to have any conversation at all, what is our authority? And, and hopefully you can get them to say this book. And you say, okay, look, then we're going to speak according to this book. And do, can we agree that this book doesn't contradict itself? Yes, okay, then, then, then we need to be able to reconcile everything. And here's one thing you're going to find. They can't do that. And when they say to you, it doesn't mean what you think it means, then here's the question you ask. Then what does it mean? Not, yes, it does. It's, tell me. I need you to, I want to be teachable. Tell me what it means. If it doesn't mean that, then what does it mean? Additionally, uh, and uh, this again is in one of these final sentences here uh, that uh, is uh, important not to miss. Believing the law to no longer possess authority was the sure sign you were a sect or a cult in biblical times. Okay, we've talked about this before, but you really need to get this because this is something that comes up all the time. We don't follow the law. We don't think the law has any uh, import today. Well, and then, and then they'll say, you guys are a cult because you think that. Well, again, let's go to Scripture and let's determine that. Acts chapter uh, 21, and I just want to show you two in relation to this, but this is after Paul has uh, been on his missionary journeys. And uh, verse 17, uh, here we have Luke, who's back in the picture now. They picked him up in Philippi. So it's, it's we again. And he says, when we came to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. James, Jesus' half-brother, who writes the book of James, who was the senior pastor there in Jerusalem. Uh, went to James, and all the elders were present. So they go, and they're reporting what they've done. After greeting them, he related Paul, meaning, uh, meaning Paul, he related one by one, uh, the, thing, the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews. So, he, so Paul is related to God saving Gentiles. And now James says, look, look at what God has been doing. Look at the many thousands that God saved among the Jews who have believed. Notice what he says next. They are all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. That word antinomianism that we use all the time, or antinomian, anti-law, namas is the term, that is where we pick up this word in the New Testament, to forsake Moses, that you are anti-namas. 
So notice what James is doing here. Pick up on it. James is like, yeah, I mean, that's great that you got all these Gentiles being saved, but there's an issue we need to address with you, Paul. You see, you've come here, and our church is filled with Jews, predominantly Jews. This is Jerusalem. And uh, man, they still love God's law, and they understand that following God is important. And the rumor that we're hearing is that you're telling these Gentiles, you're telling others that they don't have to obey uh, Jesus. And most especially uh, to the Jews who are in that area, that they, that they, they can't circumcise their children. Or walk according to the customs, which is a different word altogether. Here's the ethnos, customs, which means the things that have been handed down, traditions. He's saying, they've been told that. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify, purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what has been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. This is James. What is he doing there? He's saying, hey, we don't believe this about you, but there's a rumor that you're teaching that we don't need to follow the law. And even so far as to say that even though we know the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised because we have it through Christ, if the Jews still want to do this as just part of their tradition, even though they're not putting their salvation there, you're telling them they can't even do that. The whole point is, is that they're saying to do that is wrong. To say that we don't follow the law, that's wrong. And so Paul, you go and you prove that you do follow the law. Now think about that in relation to evangelicalism, which says you don't need to follow the law. Back in their day, they would have said, you're, you're a cult. He said, now where are you getting that word from? Well, turn over to chapter 24. Because this is what the Jews, those who were not coming to Christ, this is how they viewed all the Christians. They viewed them as a cult. They viewed them, and, and by the way, that word cult, when we use it in this way, is derogatory. It's a negative. And, and the term that is, uh, it's translated in, in 24 as the term sect. Look at verse 14. Uh, but this I confess to you, this is Paul, now, uh, before Felix and the Jews. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, that's where we get the word cult from. And it refers to something that is false. That you claim to be a part of the main group, but you're really not because what you believe is false. It's damning. And he says, they believe this, but, 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 but now based on his response, you'll be able to tell why they thought the, the Christians, which were first called the way, why they thought they were false. And, and put this now then into a modern context. The reason they thought they were false is the reason today people think that they're true. Notice what he says. They think we're called. Here's why you Jews need to know we're not. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God with these men themselves, except that, they were, uh, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. I take pains. I believe in the law. I follow the law. Again, Paul's like, look, what you believe about us Christians is not true. We follow the law. And when you go, you go back to Acts 21 with James, James is like, man, we've heard this rumor. You need to put that rumor to rest. And how ironic today, you got so-called scholars, professors saying, the law has no authority after the death of Christ. This is after the death of Christ. Is anybody reading their dang Bible? And yet they're saying, the law is very much in place. We're not a part of that group that doesn't believe in the law. That, that's, that's what sh should prove to you, in other words, that we're not a cult. How ironic. Who gets called the cult today? Those who want to follow the law. 
But again, why? You need to understand why. Because to them, you're trying to, what do they say? You're trying to earn your way to heaven. You must think you're perfect. And see, so you need to understand, they're thinking that because of their system. And that's where you need to say, no, 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 uh-uh. We've got to go back to the start. This is not works-based. And here's why then you need the law. You know what's really funny? I, I listened to a, a debate between William Lane Craig, who's the, kind of the lead apologist within the evangelical circles today, against Sam Harris, who's one of the lead uh, debaters as it relates to atheism. And, and William Lane Craig's main argument was what's called the, the moral argument for the existence of God. And, 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 and here's the irony in all this. So he's arguing for uh, morality, which comes from the law, and he's actually quoting from the law, uh, and yet they don't believe the law is in force. If I, was, if I was Sam Harris and, and, and I knew that, I'd be like, it's funny that you, you need to pick a side and stay on it. Like either the law's there or it's not. Because with me, so you use it when it's comfortable, but you don't when it's not. Which is it? You, you can't quote from something that's not in force, right? That's a, that, that's a maxim within the law. It escapes me now what, what, what they call that, but, 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 but you can't quote from something that no longer is in force. Okay, moving on. The final point. And so putting again all these together, you should start from the top. This is how, where they're coming from. It's works-based. Uh, uh, the second thing is, is to do this, you, to, 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 to get to heaven, to earn your way to heaven, you've got to be perfect. You can't miss a step. And we all know that we've missed steps. Uh, Jesus, however, was perfect, and he did it for you. He earned your way to heaven. And that means then we don't need to worry about obeying the law. All we need to do is have faith uh, in Christ. And then here's the final little cherry on the top of the evangelical system. Once saved, always saved. No loss of salvation or apostasy for those who are truly saved. They are eternally secure. And again, they would say that Scripture supports this view, which is also known as eternal security for those who are truly saved who are, or, or who have believed. And so here's the rebuttal or the response. Numerous verses make clear the dangers of loss of salvation as well as apostasy for those who are truly saved which means that such verses must be reconciled with those that seem to promote eternal security. Okay, so the first place you need to start with is say, okay, before we look at what you say, just understand that you, we have to reconcile these. They can't be in opposition to each other. The, the, when, when I have the, you know, one of the ways that you know you have the proper interpretation of Scripture is like I say, all of it lies down. Uh, it, 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 it all makes sense. Everything becomes clear. It doesn't create more confusion. It creates clarity. And so what are those verses that I'm talking about and how do they show that it's talking about uh, true believers, people who are truly saved? Because one of the arguments in the Calvinist camp would be, well, they were never truly saved, right? Uh, and so that's how they get around this. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse 5, you are, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Okay, you can't fall away from something that you were never a part of and you can't be severed from someone you were never a part of. And yet he says, you've been severed from Christ, which implies they were at one time a part of Christ. Okay, so you got truly saved people here, and Paul is warning that it's possible to be severed from him. It's possible to fall away. If you do certain things, uh, you can fall away. Uh, Second uh, John verses 1-8 says, uh, let us uh, uh, not lose what we've worked for. And Hebrews 10.25, you, you, again, these are just kind of, uh, gleaning from the really the, the cream of the crop as far as verses go, but Hebrews 10:25 uh, through 30, uh, and let me just read it uh, 
for the sake of what's being recorded here. Um, not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another is all the more you, you see the day, judgment day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Notice it's at present tense there. Dies as in now uh, if you set aside the law of Moses. And yet that's what they say you can do. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who also tramples underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, literally justified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Who are his people? Uh, the saved. Hard to trample underfoot the blood of the Son of God, uh, by which you were sanctified if you were never sanctified by it. Or outraged the spirit of grace that was never yours. And see, these are those kinds of verses that uh, then you need to ask a question. Tell me what these verses mean, okay? Because we have to reconcile these verses uh, with what, uh, what is supposedly said in others as it relates to secu uh, eternal security. So as it relates to eternal security, uh, here are the texts that are used. John 3.16 Right, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and whoever believes in him shall not perish, perish, but have eternal life. See, there it is. And they say, I've believed. I was at the football game. I saw the banner, John 3, 16. I believed. I shall not perish. The biblical response, like all verses which speak in a similar fashion. Jesus over and over throughout John, as a matter of fact, says, I believe and you will have eternal life. The operative term is believe, which according to Jesus or John, meaning this is John's gospel and there's some debate as to who's writing that portion of John, whether it's Jesus actually speaking this or John speaking about it, which according to Jesus or John includes obedience. Just 20 verses later it says, those uh, who believe in the Son have eternal life. Those who do not obey the Son, wrath. And, and, and there, by the use of that, shows that what he means by believe is synonymous with obedience. So uh, you need to believe, or you need to obey to be a believer. Hence, if a person faith is, fails to faithfully obey or continue to faithfully trust Christ, they will perish, since the condition to eternal life is no longer being met. Nowhere in Scripture, by the way, does it ever say, believe one time, and, and after that, it doesn't really matter what you do. Say the prayer and then after that it doesn't matter what you do. It's always a constant. Always a constant. You are to be believing. You are to be obeying. And so it doesn't violate this text at all. That is true. We can affirm with them. Yes, if you believe, you will not perish. Well, how do you reconcile that with the fact that people do perish who did believe? Because they ceased to believe, which includes obeying or requires obedience. See, there's no problem there, right? John uh, 6, which is a text that uh, we should look at. We're in the ninth inning, guys. You can make it. You can do it. John 6, 37 through 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not only do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he gives to me, but raise it up on the last day. And then in a similar fashion, John uh, chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And again, they would say, see, Jesus promises all those who come to him, all those who have truly believed, are truly saved, he promises to raise them up, to see that they're resurrected on that final day, unto heaven. And no doubt is what he's getting at. That no one can snatch them out of his hand. No, no one can snatch them. Uh, again, how would we respond to that? Well, the emphasis uh, in all of these verses is the same. What is Jesus telling us? That he will not fail to protect his people from external enemies and resurrect them on the final day. Jesus is saying, I'm going to do my job. I promise you I will do my job and I will not fail. These verses do not, therefore, preclude or prevent those who of their own volition choose to apostatize. Really simple. So much so that it's kind of one of those, duh, you know, it's kind of like, wow. Jesus is saying, hey, here's what I commit to, right? Romans uh, chapter 8, and, and at the time I was running out of space, and so I combined 30 with uh, 35 through 39, and they're, and they're really uh, dealing with two separate issues, or it would be better to deal with these separately. So in my response, it's all on the one line, but I'm really going to deal with these two sections. Let's read the first. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. They'll take this verse and say, see, if I've been justified, okay, so I've come into covenant relationship. But even, let's say they say, well, I'm going to use your cards now. I've come into covenant relationship with him. I've believed. You said that that's how I come into covenant relationship is through faith. Yes, okay, so I've done that. Well, it says here that everyone that he justifies, he will glorify. That means he will take them to heaven. No, it does not. But that's what the doctrine of glorification means. Yes, that may be what the doctrine of glorification means, but that's not how this word glorified is being used here or in John 17. Both in John 17, 22 and here, that word glorified, which is the only way that I've ever seen it be used, refers to being brought into the exalted place of fellowship and the family of God or Christ. Which is, I believe, what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2, 6, when he says, you've been seated in the heavenly places. Now you've been seated in the heavenly places with Christ. In the church the heavenly place on earth. And in John 17, that's what Jesus prays for. He says, glorify them as you have glorified me. And then he explains what that is. That they would be one with us as we are one. That they would be welcomed into the family. And what does it mean to be one? Go back to the marriage covenant. The two shall become one. That we would become one. And so is that true? Those that God has justified, he has glorified in that way? Absolutely. Because is that not the natural consequence of being justified? The moment we baptize somebody and they're justified, in that moment, what do we do? We say, welcome. We start calling them brother and sister. They're now part of the family of God. No problem there. Uh, moving then on to uh, 35 through 39, here's another section of verses they'll use for this eternal security thing. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And as, written for, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God uh, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Boy, they love this verse, right? Or these verses. Nothing can separate me. Yeah, nothing external. 
Every one of those things is external. Death, angels, rulers, powers, sword, famine, right? Absolutely. That's what Jesus promised, right? None of those things. He'll protect us from all of those things. No external enemies. Paul is promising Christ will protect us by not allowing external enemies to separate us from his love or eternity. Us becoming the enemy is a very different story. That then goes back to Hebrews 10.29, if you trample underfoot. You see, now what have I done? This is where you want to say that. You see what I've done? I can reconcile everything. My Bible works. Everything lays down. There's no contradiction. You, at the very least, have to admit you have major contradictions because what Paul is saying is very much against what Hebrews is saying. And are you going to do like Luther? Just get rid of the book of Hebrews? Is that, is that how we do this? Finally, Jude one twenty four. And by the way, there's other verses. These, I just think, again, are the, the cream of the crop. Uh, Jude uh, is one that is used uh, as it relates to the eternal security thing. And uh, again, it's just precision is so much a part of the game. Asking the right question to make sure that we're answering the right question, which, by the way, means making sure that you're not allowing them to frame the question that you answer. That you're thinking through whether the question that they've framed is actually correct. That's the first place to start. Uh, Verse... uh, 24, verses 24 and 25, the very end. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. See, God uh, makes sure that we don't stumble. He makes sure that we will be presented blameless on that day. It isn't about me. This is what they'll say. If it was about me getting me to heaven, there would be no hope. Praise be to God that he's the one that does it. Is he a helper? Absolutely, yes. Is God able, according to what Jude says here? Absolutely, yes. Does Jesus make the promise to protect us? Yes. The question is, are we willing to keep ourselves in his love? Where am I getting that from? Oh, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. If it's really all up to him, why are we being told to keep ourselves in his love? I I guess there's just a bunch of people who write scripture that are mentally ill. Lots of schizophrenia here, right? One minute it's us, and the next minute it's God. Maybe the issue is is that there are conditions that we need to meet faithfully if God's going to do his part, right? There are certain, just like in any contract, I can go back to that. Someone's going to mow my lawn. I say, I'm going to pay X number of dollars to mow my lawn. Uh, There's conditions on both ends. My condition is that I will pay them after they do the work. Their condition is that they do the work. The closing uh, contemplation then, and I think this is uh, very apropos to what we see in evangelicalism, uh, and this goes all the way back again to the early church, Father Cyprian, uh, but what, is, uh, what he says is very relevant, I think, or apropos uh, to today, and, and I want you as I read this in closing then to think about uh, evangelicals or evangelicalism in this respect. He says, and I quote, it is not persecution alone that we ought to fear. It is easy enough to be on one's guard when the danger of the enemy is obvious. There's more need to fear the enemy when he creeps up secretly and steals forward by those hidden approaches which have earned him the name serpent. The enemy, seeing his idols abandoned, has devised a fresh deceit using the Christian name itself to mislead the unwary. He invented heresies and schisms to undermine the faith 
to corrupt the truth, to sunder our unity. Those whom he failed to keep in the blindness of their old ways, he leads up a new road of illusion. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we've had time uh, to discuss this and to do it, uh, Lord, as I intended, in one setting so that we could hear it all together and uh, hopefully see the connections from uh, one point uh, to the next. Father, I would pray that now that uh, you would uh, give your people the heart uh, to go back Uh, to want to go back and to really uh, become masters of this material uh, so that they can help those who have been taken by uh, Satan's new illusion, uh, that which today is known as evangelicalism. Father, I pray that it's true, and I pray that, uh, again, that you would uh, be so merciful to use us here at this church for your glory in that way. Make it so, we pray, in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.